Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Jocelyn Armstrong, an attorney whose passion and job is to educate lawyers on diversity and inclusion, and who has a podcast, Inscribing Inclusion. Did I say that right, Jocelyn? You did indeed. Tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast. Well, first of all, thank you both for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you today. My podcast came about as a passion project. I was looking for something to do. And so one night I was sitting on my couch and I decided to draw up a plan and create a podcast. And just over a year later, here we are. I'm deep in season two and I discuss all topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I try to get people to just expand their lenses and think about how they consider the world. I've listened to a couple of your uh, episodes and they are very, very good. And I appreciate you coming on and talking to us today. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, why the voting process in this country is not simple, convenient, and fair for everyone. Big, uh, big topic. Big topic. Uh, Jack, uh, I've never been comfortable with um, sending in my ballot or an absentee ballot. I always go to the polls, and I've been going to the same place for the last 30 years, which is about two blocks from my home. And if there are more than five people in line at any one time, I would have been shocked about it. Uh, they got the latest equipment. They've got donuts when you leave, and I cast my vote and get my I vote sticker. Um, So what's the problem? First of all, it's not convenient for a large segment of society. For you and me, we call our own hours. It's not a big deal to get to the polling place. To a lot of people who are on a lower wage, who have a regimented work day, getting away to getting away from work is a big deal. That's the first problem. The second problem is I see it. We make it hard to vote. You know, you've got to register ahead of time. Third, in terms of the mail-in process, you hear about states having screwy rules. I think Pennsylvania had a system where you had to put the ballot in an envelope, and then you had to put that envelope in another envelope. And if you didn't have both envelopes, your vote wouldn't count. And then there were some screwy things about the date. People were getting the date wrong. Is it the date that I sign it? Is it the date of the election? I mean, the, I hate to say this, the instructions weren't idiot proof, right? It was just easy to get it wrong. So those three things, and for probably other reasons, we make voting hard. Who are, when we say we, who are we talking about, Jocelyn? Who's the we that makes voting hard? Well, we, I think, encompasses a lot of people. One we, if you think about it, is the larger system. Our governmental systems, our societal systems that make it hard. We also includes, I think, some of us as individual voters. If we have a bad time voting, we are going to tell everyone about it, and then we may never vote again. Or there'll be a long lapse in the time when we're voting again. And those people that heard about our bad experience don't hear then if we have a new and better experience, right? So we we also don't always go vote. 
um, I'll probably talk about this a little more later. I'm sure we'll get to it. But we sometimes are very excited about elections every four years when there's a big presidential election. But we forget that every year or every other year there are local elections and statewide elections that deserve our attention as well. It was a humbling experience when I ran for judge to realize that out of the 850,000 some odd eligible voters in Franklin County, about 200 cast their vote in my particular race. Uh, it just was, uh, it was sad to know that one, I didn't reach that many people or that that many people didn't care about the judicial races. Now, you know, the governor and, and some of the statewide races got a, got a larger uh, percentage, but yeah, down ballot is a, a real, real problem in our country. Um, setting aside for a minute, the apathy that we as citizens might have, Jack, you talked about uh, registration. I wonder if there's any good reason why registering to vote has to be that difficult. The answer is probably not. So some of the rules are you have to register 30 days before or something crazy like that. Why can't you have same-day registration and same-day voting? I don't know if I know of a reason why that would cause some issue. Because we've always done it that way. And we'd like... (laughs) I'm serious! (laughs) I mean, that's what we've always done. And somebody, there's always somebody who has some crazy argument about why that's so necessary. But you never hear the reasoning behind why that's so necessary to make it hard. Maybe you know, Jocelyn. Well, when you think about it, voting in our country, the history of it, I'm a nerd. I'm confessing that now, so no one will be surprised. (laughs) But the history of voting in our country was always problematic. When you think about at the very beginnings of this nation, the people that could vote were men who owned land, specifically white men who owned land. And then there was a shift um, in the late 1800s and they were like, okay, white men can vote. You don't have to be a landowner though because citizens, and that's how they describe citizens were white men. And then they said, okay, we're gonna do this three fifths compromise thing. So now black men can vote too. Still leaving out white women and black women who eventually around 1920 got the right to vote. And there was a whole lot of consternation and swirling about between white women and black people about the right to vote and what that meant coming out of just on the heels of the Emancipation Proclamation and all these things. So we've never made it easy. And then we had to get all the way to 1965 and get the Voting Rights Act. And that has been an interesting dynamic because when uh, President Johnson signed it, there were certain protections that meant that you didn't have to pay a poll tax or you didn't have to tell someone how many bubbles were in a bar of soap before you could vote. And then we look forward to now and some of those very things that were signed into the Voting Voting Rights Act of 1965 are being slowly stripped back, particularly when we look at the state level. They're just making little tweaks to kind of take these rights away from folks. It's just, it's just more subtle this way. It's Absolutely. not like count the jelly beans in the jar. That was just out and out in your face. We don't want you to vote. This is subtle. Exactly. I, I know that it goes back to the political parties. Uh, uh, us Republicans understand, because we can look at the data, that Republicans go to the polls and they vote. And they go to the polls on Election Day and they vote on Election Day. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Republicans register in big numbers. And so if you can make it harder to register, then you're going to keep a lot of people that aren't Republicans from voting for your opponent. Can I take an aside here? Yeah. Every time you say that you're a Republican, I have to remind everybody that you're you're a Republican in name only. 
You're as open-minded and progressive as the day is long. I, I, I take offense to you calling me a rhino. Did you see the? <laughs> did you see the advertisement by some guy in Missouri that is hunting rhinos? No. And he busts into a house with shotguns and talks about it's open season on rhinos, Republican in name only. And uh, well, oof. I I would suggest to you that you do not move to Missouri. <laughs> Probably safer that way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that, uh, you know, uh, wrapping up the because I think one of the least of our problems is registration. It seems to me there may be a practical reason to have people register ahead of the day that we're going to vote just because of enough people power to get everybody in the system so that it runs smoothly on Election Day. But um, I've never understood why we can't have uh more time to vote like you said jack uh if i don't want to go into work tomorrow i can not go into work tomorrow right i have that type of a job so i can go and vote whether it's raining cold beautiful day out but a lot of people can't so why not just let them vote either uh early voting what do we have in ohio it's about 30 days isn't it Usually, and they, they keep moving that around, though. So mm-hmm. it's, it's getting shorter and shorter the closer we get to major elections. So, you know, give people that opportunity to get in early. And then mail-in voting really uh, took off during the pandemic, which seems to me to be a wonderful thing. Well, and besides the pandemic um, that spurred mail-in voting, my late grandmother was an avid absentee ballot voter because... Um, she was in her 70s and 80s and did not drive. And so leaving the house to get to the poll on election day, you talk about weather and that sort of thing when you have arthritis and other things, it's not something you want to do. But she would absolutely get that ballot and mail it back in in time because she could send that with one of us or with my mom or my aunt or someone to the post office. Actually, I had an aunt who worked at the post office, so that was even easier. But when you think about older people, that is such a wonderful convenience for them just because of the way their lives are set up. I think I read that Washington State, am I right about this? It's exclusively mail-in voting. I know there were a couple of states that were or uh, heavily, um, you know, uh, the, the use of mail-in voting. Right. Was, and very, very low incident of any issues or problems and certainly hardly any fraud. Uh, again, it makes me a little uneasy. Uh, I think it's just because of the, 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 my generation. Uh, I still carry cash. I'm, I'm not sure I like uh, even the, the credit cards or certainly bitcoins. Uh, <laughs> uh, confuses the hell out of me. So, um, but um, but I, I think that people should be able to vote early. Um, not early and often, but early. Uh, one of the things that happens in Franklin County, and just again because I've been through the process uh, on a personal level, a lot of the early voting is on the Democrat side. Mm-hmm. And so the first numbers you see on election night are from the early voting tallies, mm-hmm. which usually puts the uh, Democrat candidate in the lead until the day of voting starts to come in and the polling places start to report. And then it's uh, just whether uh, the candidate can make up the difference or not. Uh, I'm just wondering why it skews that way. Why are a lot of the Democrats uh, voting early where a lot of the Republicans vote day of? I think some of it, as a person who technically marks Democrat on her forms, um, some of it comes from a couple of things. One is there is often engagement in the communities where Democratic folks are more likely to live 
um, to get people out to vote early. So you have churches, for instance, who have the things that they call souls to the polls. And so they'll take church vans or buses and, you know, drive people to the early voting location. And it's become even better now that it's centralized in this large former grocery store and a strip mall. The other thing is that when you consider socioeconomic status, and we talked a little bit about folks that don't have the leeway with their job schedules, for them to go in and vote on a Saturday or a Sunday or after five o'clock is much more convenient. And so that's why you see such numbers in the early voting columns in those particular communities. And we're talking about primarily people of color as well. And again, tend to have more jobs that are not as flexible as the jobs that we all hold. How do you get people to go, even if it's um, if we give them 30 days before an election? Well, that leads us, I think, to the uh, apathy question. I remember reading, probably was Time Magazine, can't remember specifically, but the reporter was talking to people of color, lower income, who felt disenfranchised. So from their point of view, it doesn't make any difference how they vote nothing good is going to happen. Now, that's a significant barrier to overcome because guess what? <laughs> to an extent, they're right. So but so we have to, I guess, present more candidates who are willing to promote change. And even if you have a number of candidates who are willing to promote change, they've got to contend with that massive amount of inertia that sits in the Capitol building. It also becomes an issue of intentionality. And so I, I know, as a person who goes to a church in a certain neighborhood, that around about September or maybe early October, I'm going to see an influx of candidates for all types of positions coming to our Sunday services that have never set foot in the church before. Oh. And then I may not see these people again until it's their time to run again. And if folks don't see you outside of election time, they start to not believe the things that you say, because if you make these promises to them about what you're going to do in the community and then they don't see you at the community food bank or they don't see you walking in the neighborhood and talking to kids and knocking doors outside of election season, they think that you are not genuine. The other thing is that we're starting to notice a shift as well in younger people. So I call them younger millennials because millennials, the older millennials are almost 40 now, but younger millennials and Gen Z are very disenfranchised with and and unimpressed with systems broadly. And so they are disengaging at very high rates. And I think about some of my friends who are younger than me, who are very well educated, have multiple degrees, wonderful jobs, and they too are wondering why they bother to vote. Because even in the seats that they sit in, they don't see the larger societal change that are impacting maybe their cousins who are not as well off or the students that they teach at their institutions. And so they, being very well-read people who are paying attention to the writing on the wall, are also saying, I'm probably going to sit this one out. And that's interesting to me. Well, not only do these friends of yours not see change for those who are less well off, they're probably not seeing changes that match what they'd like to see for society as a whole. Well, if we uh, had more choices, that might bring more people out too. I mean, you basically have two people on the ballot. um, And uh, oftentimes, I think I would rather not vote for either. And it's a choice of uh, of the lesser of, of two 
evils, for lack of a better word. I wonder if we had on the ballot none of the above, if more people would come out and express that uh, vote. And that would uh, you know, give us more inclusion into the voting process. Uh, I could see doing that. I also rarely vote in an uncontested race. I, well, I'm really stuck on that idea. I really like that. None of the above. <laughs> that <laughs> would speak volumes. That's got a certain charm yeah. about it, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It. It. Uh, uh, you know, the, the vetting isn't by the voters. Really, the vetting of candidates is by the the parties. And uh, unfortunately, we don't always get the uh, loyalty to the voters. We get uh, loyalty to the party. Uh, I've been through the screening process, and you do have to show that you've been a part of the party, that you've done what the party has asked you, you uh, haven't contributed to anybody that's not in the party. <laughs> You're, uh, so it's, uh, it, it, it does seem to um, require a certain loyalty uh, uh, to your party to, to run. But um, uh, I think more, more people on the ballot and maybe more choices would, would help us. I think we ought to get back to more nuts and bolts than these sort of intuitive philosophical discussions as to why voters don't vote. We ought to be taking a look at really what's going on in terms of the difficulty in voting or the, the many recent legislative efforts to restrict voting because as far as I can tell, it all sprung from the November 2020 election. You and I were talking about this a little bit, um, I think last night, right? Yeah. And um, I think it did too. And I think it sprung from that out of a necessity because I believe that the Republicans understand that they're in the minority in this country, uh, certainly uh, nationally, and they want to govern from the minority position in a, uh, a democracy and the only way they can do that is to restrict the votes um, so I agree 100 uh, percent some of the laws are insane uh, what they're doing w was it Georgia that says that if there's a line outside of a polling place you can't give people water within 100 feet 150 feet I think of the actually actual polling location mm -hmm. yeah I, I, what does that matter really yeah who cares yeah in a state where it's likely to be 80 degrees on election day anyway. Right. I have one of my best friends from college lives in Georgia and was interviewed by some international news outlets after the last major election because he went on Instagram Live and he also has a, a video podcast or a vlog, if you will, where he talks about these kinds of voting experiences and he shared how long he was in the line and he lives in a somewhat suburban area of town but still largely African-American. And it was a couple of hours. I remember getting text updates from him throughout that experience about why he was there for so long and why he wasn't getting out of the line. And this was increasingly interesting and important because he was voting for new people because the area of Atlanta that he lives in was being annexed as a new city or a new township. And so they had to vote for the township leadership. And it was wildly interesting. Well, those long lines certainly present another reason for why you shouldn't vote it's hard work and then the id rules uh you know um, a lot of people have an issue with uh with that and uh, it just makes it hard for certain 
portion of our population to prove that they have the right to vote in an election. And again, it's it's it benefits one party that it's hard to take it serious that it, it has any other purpose. Um, I really believe that a lot of people in our country want minority rule. Hmm. They're okay with that as long as it benefits them, right? No question. Yeah. So let's make it harder for the majority to vote us out of office. Um, what other states are doing goofy things, Jack? I looked at a summary, and I think it was provided by the William Brennan Center for Justice, which really focuses on um, voting. And a lot, of, a number of the common denominators were restricting mail mail-in voting. That means uh, perhaps you have to request it as opposed uh, request it and have a reason as opposed to it being automatic. Cutting down the amount of time for voting by mail, restricting drop boxes, all the things that just make it a little more inconvenient for people. Unlike the three of us who have jobs, where we can break away for a couple hours and it's no big deal. Here's another thought. The states have a variety of rules for, in, for mail-in voting, which help foster the kind of nonsensical talk that Trump talked about regarding the vote. If you recall, on, on, the, on the election day, his numbers were fairly good. But as they start counting votes, his numbers go down, which led him to make the easy argument, oh, there's something wrong with the system. Well, take a look at what the, the states do. There are four states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, I think Alabama, can't remember the other one. They don't count mail-in votes until election day. So that's going to cause a problem. Then a number of other states say, well, you can, your, your uh, mail-in ballot has to be received by election day. That probably doesn't cause too many problems because those votes will get counted as they come in. Other states say, as long as your mail-in ballot is postmarked by election day, we'll count it. Well, that means you're counting votes for some number of days past election day. So it's easy for people who don't want to read how the system works and want to jump to conclusions to say, there's a problem with the system. We've got to tighten this up. When we talk about disenfranchising voters, I, I think back to the gerrymandering, too, of these districts. Um, Jocelyn, like you said, what, why does it matter if I go to vote in um, an area where the Republican is going to win no matter what? because they've gerrymandered that district so that that Republican's going to win every time. And I do think that people stay home because of that. They do. I've seen some states, though, I think it was maybe Arizona, interestingly enough, who had sort of a, a map based on population density. So you get these circles in the way that they draw their districts, as opposed to some other states uh, where they have these kind of puzzle piece, <laughs> interesting shaped sort of things that, that make up their districts. And it, it, again, was based on population density and that sort of thing. The other thing is if we're all in the same county or in the same state, no matter how you carve it up, if we're voting for you know our senator or something like that, everyone in the state has to vote anyway. Let's just get people out here to vote. 
Yeah, and it's uh, it's difficult, um, I think, more so with the House races because of the gerrymandering. Uh, you end up getting uh, people that are elected that have no incentive to do anything other than get elected. You mean like the speaker? You mean like uh, the uh, president of the Senate in Ohio, Steve Huffman, and everybody else who's on the redistricting commission? Are, are you talking about those people? No, I'm not, but it would be Matt Huffman. <laughs> Steve's the other Huffman. <laughs> uh, Mr. Huffman, I apologize for getting your first name wrong. <laughs> I think you were talking, though, more so about the the house races at the federal level yes and with their terms only being two years they are constantly campaigning i don't know that they actually have time to go visit their districts or i mean there there are some summer breaks and that sort of thing but they don't have time to visit their districts or actually see what's happening because they have to go to another fundraiser or they have to make calls i wonder if we maybe gave them term limits and expanded the length of their terms that might make it a little bit better it might. I um, used to laugh with my dad about John Boehner. I uh, had met Mr. Boehner a few times, but he came from a place in Ohio that he could have run every election and won no matter what. But he was one of the most powerful people in the country because of that politically, where when you looked at it, a very small minority actually elected him, but he had all the power. It's incredible. Mitch McConnell, very much a similar way, comes from a state that doesn't have a big population. The people that actually vote for him are a very tiny fraction of the people of this country. Yet, he, you know, for years called all the shots. Decades even. Decades, right. Way too many decades. And I have to tell you, Jocelyn, that I see absolutely no hope of changing the system in terms of gerrymandering, campaign finance, or term limits for one simple reason. The people who are in power like those things because that's how they got to where they are and they don't want to leave. So that would take a group of uh, politicians to do what they are incapable of doing, which is thinking about others than themselves. It's hard to control the presidential election through gerrymandering, you know, some of these other things we're talking about has some effect, but uh, it's really the electoral college that is is the uh, impediment to uh, to the uh, the presidential race. Um, but when you think about it, uh, I think the Republicans have to be a little scared because they're losing. With so, all they're doing, they're still losing the popular vote. The popular vote, and it gets worse by twenty forty. Whites become my, the minority. They're going to need a new battle plan. Well, as a Republican, Jack, uh, yeah. as, I a, as, a, as a Democrat <laughs> dressed in Republican clothing, continue. I, I still am okay with, with a lot of the old policies of the Republican Party, and it seems to me that the, the center, the people in the center of our politics, I wish they would come back, those politicians. Um, it, but to get that, my suggestion is don't vote for an incumbent for the next four cycles oh <laughs> it just it's kind of laundering out everybody that's there right that would be a shift i think the other thing too though is we have to look at this i kind of take a big picture view of this one, whether we're talking about politics or employment or the court system or anything else is that jack you mentioned that folks are running scared so to speak about losing and upsetting the apple cart and taking themselves out of positions oh, yeah. of power And part of that is because you have people that are subscribing to the scarcity mentality. 
There is this mm-hmm. belief that mm-hmm. if if someone else gets something, then that means mine is gone. And I've yet to see that really actually happen. I spend some time, I'm talking to someone later, about the possibility of going to law school. And I spend time doing this. I'm a licensed lawyer here in our state. And every time I have a conversation with a young person that thinks they want to go to law school, I'm not suddenly afraid that my license is in jeopardy. I can still very much be an attorney once they graduate and pass the bar. I mean, that's a very simple, silly example. But that is kind of the the dynamic that we're facing is that we have people who think that if someone gets a little more access to education or clean water or the ballot, that suddenly they don't have something. And that's not exactly how life really works. I think you've hit on something. And Gonzo and I have talked about that in other podcasts on different subjects. But fear is a significant motivator in general. And fear is a very big motivator right now in elections. That's why we have white supremacists. They're afraid of losing out. They're they're going to be harmed if too many people of color vote. There's a more practical component sometimes, though. Um, Again, when I was running, when my wife Ann was running, you have political people that all they do are look at the polls, look at what is motivating people to come out and vote for or against you, and they run these elections. Mm. And so you have a, a... Let's just take a a person that really is getting into government for the right reasons. They they see that there's a need for change and they want to get. Well, their campaign person's going to tell them, if you aren't for Donald Trump in this area, you're not going to get elected. So you need to be for Donald Trump. Then when you get elected, you know, maybe you can change what you're doing. And so I I think that some of our politicians are so caught up in trying to get elected that they will say or do anything that the polling tells them is necessary to get elected. It's the the, um, uh, ends justify the means kind of approach, right? I don't think there's any question about that. How is it that we would have so many House representatives even today talking about the big lie? They can't all really believe that, but they sure as hell are afraid of Donald Trump. Well, so when we start thinking about the psychology of, well, uh, you know, it may be somebody taking our place and we, we fear that as white men, we're, we're losing, you know, the, the majority in our power. Sometimes I think it's more on a base level is I just want to get elected. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get elected. Um, and it's too bad that I think we have too many people like that, that a lot of us, I think you feel the same way I do and probably maybe Jocelyn is. I wouldn't want that job if that's what I have to do to get it, right? No question. We ought to change the uh, conversation just a little and talk about Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia. Now, Stacey Abrams, I don't know how she did it, but she apparently turned out the vote in Georgia. And I imagine that turning out the vote meant speaking to people of color and people who normally are frustrated But somehow she had the magic formula to make that all happen. And the reason I bring this up is we're not going to be able to change the legislation that we're now seeing, or at least we're not going to be able to change it in the foreseeable futures. What we need is probably about 100 more Stacey Abrams throughout the country telling us how to get the vote out because that's important and regrettably it's i gotta believe that's a herculean effort whatever she did it was ours 
Well, this is an important point to plug that Stacey Abrams is an attorney. (laughs) (laughs) I have my own thoughts about attorneys in the legislature. I think they're important. Uh, She has a book. She's written a couple of books, actually, Mm -hmm. but she has a book that's called Our Time Is Now, Mm -hmm. where she lays out how she activated voters in Georgia. And it was it was a Herculean effort that she did not do alone. She also started a long time ago. She was always interested in voter education and and getting people to the polls. She happened to run last time against someone who was the incumbent secretary of state and shifted some things in time for the election, interestingly enough. And now he's their governor. Go figure. Um, But she is a very deliberate person. And in in the book, and I think it's in the introduction of the book, she mentions talking to her grandmother. And she um, comes from folks who started not just in Georgia, but in Mississippi. And her grandparents were getting ready to go vote with some other relatives after the 1965 Voting Rights Act was signed. And after watching their children, her her mother and his, her father and his siblings rather, were out marching and protesting and the grandparents stayed at home. And so when it was time for them to go vote, she her grandmother relates the story of sitting in her bedroom and being absolutely terrified of leaving the house because she was afraid that even though this had been signed into law, that once they got to the polling location, something was going to happen that was going to prevent them. And then she said, she, her grandfather came in and said, what are you doing in here? And she said, I'm afraid. And he says, well, the kids fought for this. So we have to go do this because our teenage children, our early young adult children put their lives on the line for this and we supported them quietly. Now we have to do this. And so she shares that her grandmother went Um, And she did vote and nothing happened when they went to the polling location. But even that many years later, when her grandmother was relating the story to her, she said that it was shrouded in shame because her grandmother was embarrassed that she even had to think twice about this Mm. thing that folks had been fighting so hard for. But you think about the fact that this was a woman who watched this change and came up in a time where the world around her was changing Mm -hmm. so rapidly and was afraid to leave her house to go vote. And I don't think that we can, you know, we talk about apathy and that sort of thing, but some of it also is related to fear. Well, considering what on part, the other side, considering yeah. what part of the South, what part of the U.S. she lived in, I can appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, you know, my um, fellow Republicans, though, are, are hedging their bets, right? Because they're ready to take the election after everybody votes, even when they lose. They figure they're going to win, and there's laws in states now that um, that um, I think there's there was a statistic I I saw out of Missouri. Uh, they can uh, do an election audit based on a petition signed by five percent of the registered voters. Um, the citizens in New Hampshire uh, can remove election offic- officials they don't like. Uh, the the amount of pressure on the people that are supposed to certify elections out of the last presidential election was incredible. Um, you just hope that there's enough sensible people to put some restrictions and, and, and can uh, prevent that from happening because we can all go out and vote, but if the party that loses can then ignore it, where are we? It would be cataclysmic. Uh, we'd have a new form of government. Yeah, uh, we would. And it, it's just still worries me that a large percentage of our population may not care. Well, they care. They just don't care about the facts. They care about what they want. They care about their fear. But they don't care about fairness in its purest form. Or there are people who are merely exhausted 
because they have lived through and continue to live through this perpetual attack on the rights that they thought were somehow guaranteed through legislation. And they're finding out that those are constantly under attack, too. So their exhaustion makes them just want to disconnect from it all. It's one of the reasons I enjoy sports so much. It's uh, oftentimes a level playing field. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows the rules, and some people are better at using those rules to their advantage, like a Bill Belichick or somebody like that. But uh, in the end, there are rules that they play by, and there's a winner and there's a loser, and then you you go on with your life. And um, uh, it just seems to me that politics isn't playing by the rules anymore, if we even know what the rules are. Well, the problem, the difference between sports and politics is that our governing institutions, the Constitution, for example, they are premised on people acting honorably and fairly. As we've talked about in prior shows, there aren't any consequences for not fulfilling your role. There aren't any consequences necessarily for extending your power. So if people don't want to play nice like your mother taught you to do, there's room for terrible things to happen. Well, Jocelyn, we appreciate you coming today. Um, thank you so much for the uh, interesting uh, conversation. Uh, I was thinking about what I could do to get more people to vote next time. Uh, my son lives down on campus with about eight other gentlemen in his house. It's a ministry house. And he said, as far as he know, he was the only one that voted last time. Mm. And I thought, for all the things going on in your young people's lives that are affecting you right now, so I'm going to take a van over and get them all in it and take them to the polls to vote. So that's going to be my promise to them. That's a great idea. Good idea. You should probably also get them breakfast, too. They'll enjoy that. <laughs> Cold pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I won't judge the food. I I want to thank you too, Jocelyn. It, will, it really was a good conversation. And in addition, I want to thank WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long. <laughs>